Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. The common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your model. What am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Hi. Before we get into this conversation, I want to let you know about something I've been working on for a while and which is now available for free on my website. It's a piece called Myth for Modern Men, A Letter to My Son. Again, you can download this for free on my website, explorerpoet.com. I wrote this letter to provide a guide which my son can reference during his own individuation quest, kind of like a map for growing up, maturing, and finding his way in this chaotic world. Today, perhaps more than ever, the world needs men who are balanced, aware, emotionally intelligent, and driven to become whole individuals who can contribute to families, communities, and society in a healthy way. Rather than encourage the process of self-discovery, modern institutions often force men into compliance or predetermined roles. Society seldom encourages young men to explore their values nor think critically, and they don't teach necessary truths about the self, myth, psychology, emotions, fulfillment, education, money, careers, spirituality, relationships, or sex. In Myth for Modern Men, I tackled these topics and many more in a manner that I hope is clear and digestible. Again, you can download Myth for Modern Men for free by visiting my website, explorerpoet.com. Okay, thanks, and please enjoy this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Paul Robichaud, an author and professor who writes on cultural history, myth, and modern poetry. Paul teaches English at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. His first book, Pan the Great God's Modern Return, explores the Greek god Pan through classical myth, modern literature, film, and music. Paul is also the creator of the Substack Thresholds, in which he explores myth, folklore, and literature. His next book, Stories of the Stones, Imagining Prehistory in Britain, Ireland, and Brittany, is expected to be available next year. Paul is well-versed in myth and stories and the ways in which they resonate with real life. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Paul, and I hope you do as well. Okay. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Explore Poet Podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, I, I was really interested in speaking with you because it seems like, first of all, it seems like you have a lot of shared interests uh, with me, but it also, you've gone into some very specific things um, in your writing, in your books, and I thought it would be really cool to catch up with you on that. Um, and one of the things I just noticed actually on your, that you had posted to Twitter this morning is that, is it correct that today is the one year anniversary of your, your paperback being published? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pan came out in paperback um, one year ago today uh, in the UK uh, from Reaction Books. Um, they're based over there. And then um, a month later, it came out in paperback over here where uh, they're distributed by University of Chicago Press. So, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I would love, I want to get into Pan because it's actually a character that I find fascinating. And um, the, the kind of the most modern known version of it, Peter Pan, is one of the stories that I, I find infinitely 
fascinating, interesting. I think it's really worth diving into for our time period. Um, sure. But before we get to that, I'm just curious from, you know, what is what is uh, your story when it comes to myth and and stories? Like, what is this connection to you? And uh, why does it draw you in? What's interesting about it to you? Yeah, well, um, I think like I think like a lot of people, you know, I grew up reading the Greek myths and the Norse myths, and um, you know, at some point, I I discovered uh, the Celtic myths as well, and um, I've always been interested in myth. I think um, I, I think that myth, you know, taps into it taps into a lot of universal concerns, um, and I think through storytelling, we often find ways of working through some of the kind of basic life situations we find ourselves in. But we also can think about our relationships to the natural world, to the cosmos. Um, and I think myths try to find answers through stories to some of those questions that, you know, we can't necessarily answer. And um, unless we're kind of within the culture, um, which we're we're not, if we're talking about ancient Greek myths or Norse myths or whatever, we, we we're not we're not necessarily looking at these stories as true in the sense they're requiring us to believe in them in some way. But I think they offer, you know, again, interesting perspectives on the way we've thought about um, the the big questions. You know, who who are we? Where do we come from? How should we behave to each other? You know, what what is our relationship to the unknown, the divine, um, those kinds of, uh, those kinds of questions. And I mean, I think at, at root, the, if we're still interested in myths, it's because they're interesting stories. I mean, whatever they mean to us, we can just kind of enjoy them as stories, but I do think they raise these kind of bigger, bigger questions about things. Um, and, um, kind of in my earlier, um, kind of academic work looking at, um, a, a writer and painter I find really interesting named, named David Jones. I, um, I was kind of drawn to him because he, um, he turns to a lot of traditional Celtic myths like we find in the Mabinogi and in his work and, and um, sort of connects them to the present in all kinds of interesting ways. So, so I've always been interested in myth. And, um, and I think in the case of Pan, um, uh, you know, we have, uh, and I guess we'll we'll talk a little bit more about him, but but there are very few myths around him, and so he he's he's a really intriguing figure to think about in relation to myth, in part because there's so few actual myths about him, and yet, you know, he's a kind of persistent presence um, in uh, in the ancient world, and um, and one that you know continues to fascinate people today. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting the way you talk about being in the culture versus looking back at past cultures, because it really is easy to look at the Greeks, the Norse, the Celts, and and see what their stories were and what they were trying to teach them in the time. Um, they become interesting to us. But it's almost as if when we're in the myth, we don't even realize it's a myth. We almost just perceive it as reality. And, and we let that kind of guide our thinking, guide our behavior. Uh, so what, was there a moment in your in your youth or at some point when you first realized that that kind of what these myths were like where, where you got to this point where you said, oh, these are teaching us things. These are uh, there's some depth here where somebody was searching for something. It was there like a key moment for you where this kind of clicked and then myths became they kind of opened up to you. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think probably, you know, in my, in my twenties, I, I sort of discovered, uh, the work of Carl Jung and, um, you know, his, his whole idea of, of, of archetypes and the idea that, um, myths are, um, myths are dramatizing aspects of our own psyches, our own inner journeys. And, um, and again, I, I think like a lot of people, uh, at some point in there, I read, you know, Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And, uh, uh, and in some ways, you know, those young and Joseph Campbell belong to an earlier time and their, their ideas have, you know, come in for a lot of criticism and, um, kind of academic circles and things, but I think that they both kind of tapped into, uh, this feeling we have that we, um, we read these stories and we connect with them. They resonate in some way. And I think there's, there's that, there's a kind of experience that is difficult to explain away. It's difficult to maybe even frame in kind of purely academic kinds of terms. And I think Campbell and Young both sort of recognized that. I mean, whatever you think about the the reality of archetypes or the notion that we might have a collective unconscious that these stories are in some way emerging out of, um, they do resonate with with readers um, and readers who don't necessarily belong to the culture they're they're coming from, like you mentioned. And um, and I think that 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 experience is a really interesting one. Um, so. Yeah, so I would say that's that was probably my you know my my introduction to the idea that these are just more or can be more than stories. You know, um, they have this quality. I, I really like Jung's idea of the numinous, like this idea there's something kind of inexplicable, um, energizing, mysterious, um, and I think that 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 quality is something we find in you know great works of art, but um, also in um, in religious stories and and myths as well. And again, we don't necessarily have to believe in the religion or believe that the myth is literally true, but that that sense, uh, I keep, I kind of come back to this word of, of resonance, you know, that it resonates with us. It connects with us in some, some way that's hard to articulate because it's, it's a feeling I, I think at root. I don't know. If that yeah, makes sense. That makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I've read a lot of Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell as well, and the the thing that strikes me about them, or you know, similar seekers, is that this thing that you're talking about with the ac academic world, or you know, the the world of empirical testing that's looking for truth and information through process and you know validation and this kind of thing. At, at the at the at some root core, there seems to be a similar desire when it comes like a similar need to find truth when it comes to the people who are exploring myth, who are exploring the psyche. It just seems like perhaps there are these two options. There's like the scientific route, and then there's this this other route, which is you know it comes through like you're saying comes through feeling and comes through experience, and you can't really you can't always correlate everybody's experiences, but it's that, it really is that resonance or that numinosity, that numinous feeling that's sitting with people and uh, that, that holds them. I also think that it's interesting the the way that we look at past myths and um, they still connect with us. And in a way it's almost, I almost think of it as, as 
these are the myths that led up to our current myth. And so in a way, it's kind of like reading about our, you could call them like our, obviously there are ancestral myths, but it's almost like they're the grandparents of the myth that we're, in, we're embodying today. And so in a way, it's, uh, there's always going to be that resonance as long as, as long as you spend the time with the story. Yeah, I, right. I think um, these these myths of other other earlier cultures, um, you know, thinking we're really thinking about Western cultures here, but you know, they are they're kind of like studying them as kind of like you know a, a kind of archaeology of the myths and stories that shape us. And I think something you I, I think you made a good point earlier, sort of thinking about this idea of uh, myths as stories that we don't necessarily have to believe, but that going along with a kind of lack of awareness of the myths that shape the way we currently think. And even if you look at, you know, something like religious fundamentalism, right, and in whatever form, I mean, people who subscribe to kind of fundamentalist versions of religion, they are, in a sense, doing what Joseph Campbell said everybody does, which is, you know, living the myth. Um, but they're living the myth in a way that is is completely unaware of it as a myth. It's it's a set of maybe a set of stories, a set of teachings or instructions um, or beliefs that are presented as literally true and must be obeyed uh, in some way for fear of punishment. And even though the punishment is usually presented as ultimately divine in origin in in reality the punishment is is often a social one even in even in a society um you know like the united states where people who belong to really narrow kind of fundamentalist versions of religion often faced ostracism sometimes even abuse um from from the people in their communities and these are in in some way in some ways they show the dangers of myth too like if we if we just completely embrace this mythic worldview without thinking about it without thinking about its possibilities but also its limitations or you know kind of the ethics involved in believing a certain set of teachings or something i think that's when when we kind of run into trouble um and uh, in, in some ways it it's allowing myth to do too much for us uh you know, shaping our behavior and and so on in ways that um, don't require us to do any of the the work, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, again, that makes a lot of sense to me. I grew up in a situation that was very religious and very, you could call it fundamental. It was um, the word that I use now is the is literal. They thought mm -hmm. of the myth as very literal, and like you were saying, when it's just teachings from on high, and you accept that when it's commandments or doctrines that you have to live and rituals that you have to complete, it becomes very literal. And going back to Carl Jung, I think what happens when you have these literal interpretations of a scripture or a myth, what ends up happening is that you become completely unaware of what you're not aware of, right? Your shadow. Yeah. And so your the, the culture that I experienced being within it there's just a huge shadow of, of uh, people not getting to be their true selves, people being punished for, just like you were saying, the punishment comes as not something that happens after, after this life, but it's, it's in the social contract where if you don't live up to the rules of the group, the literal interpretation of the group, then 
because you're you've kind of like moved into their shadow they just can't they just don't know don't even know how to tolerate you because if they were to tolerate you it's almost as if you would point out the things that they're doing um yeah it's so i think that from my perspective now when i think about myth because i grew up so long thinking that myth was literal um now i see it as this every myth is this this tool that could be used from for a psychological analysis and and you you could take every myth and obviously apply it inward and apply it to yourself which i i think is probably the best way to do it but you can also then apply it to the group as if as if the individual is just a smaller manifestation of the larger group and the the groups that aren't aware the individuals that aren't aware that their myth isn't literal they're the ones who end up i think doing the most damage yeah um and i think i i, I like your point about you know when i guess i grew up i grew up in a kind of conventionally but pretty liberal catholic you know home and and community and i there was a fair amount of tolerance for different opinions and things like that but you know it was it was still in the context of a very kind of rigid institutional uh, so, sort of faith. And I think that um, I think that the the problem when we don't realize the myths we're living in are not uh, necessarily literally true or we just kind of accept them in that that literal way is that we don't we don't think about we really don't think about what they mean, right? And I think like what you're describing, thinking about you know what what does the story mean for us as an individual? like what does it mean for? Uh, my inner life, but what does it mean for my relationship to the the people in my community who kind of share this myth? It's just it can very easily just become going through the motions, but going through the motions in a way that, as as you suggest, can be um, you know very exclusive and and at its worst can just become outright abusive of of people um, and and deny that uh, all of those areas that the myth doesn't kind of include or maybe maybe approve of. Uh, you know yeah absolutely and i think that uh yeah i've experienced that in my own life but uh yeah you see it you see it in anytime you come up against a group who's really ingrained in their belief system i think what one thing that's interesting now is that obviously there are a lot of there are still plenty of religions out there but i think that there's actually a lot more there are a lot of myths that have captured groups of people that aren't necessarily related to some deity in the sky or some deity that looks over us. And I'm curious, um, when you, when you observe the world or when you, you know, you think about these things, are there myths that you've identified that are the modern myths that people fall into? And, you know, do they, what, what kind of, when we look at those myths, literally, what kind of outcomes do you see? Wow. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and I think um, I it seems to me that even even though this has been true probably for at least the last hundred years, maybe longer, I think one myth that Western societies still seem to be very much in, enthralled to is is the myth of progress. Um, and again, you know, using myth here in a way that is is not saying there's no progress. I mean, clearly. Um, you know, we can combat diseases that we couldn't combat, whatever, 100 or 200 years ago. But but the idea that um, sort of every day in every way, the world is is just getting better and that tech, technology and endless economic growth are going to 
solve all of our problems eventually. You know, we're just kind of moving, moving towards there. And I think it's made us very, very, very vulnerable to um, the unintended consequences of technology, for example, um, thinking about, um, you know, just one kind of obvious example, the, the effects of social media on, on mental health, particularly, you know, children, adolescents, things like that. So, so we, we, we embrace these myths. And I think technology, you know, technology has almost become a myth in itself. Like we're just, um, we're, we're absolutely enthralled by it. And it's, it's the solution for everything. Um, and I think that that I don't know. To to me, that seems to be the dominant myth that doesn't doesn't really involve any deities or necessarily supernatural kinds of beliefs, but just this belief that uh, technology is continually improving and is continually improving our lives without really considering the consequences um, of that. You know, I mean, it's um, it's that it's those shadow qualities, right? You, you mentioned so we. We lose ourselves in in the little screens, and we ignore our our bodies, our emotional well being, our social relationships, and things like that because we're so focused on on the screen in front of us. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as much part of this world as anybody else. It's 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 hard to navigate, um, but always in the background, there's the sense that this is kind of how things should be, and it's going to get even better. Um, you know, yeah, I think about progress and efficiency and uh, all I think about all I think about that as well and it's interesting to me that in the east if we're going to talk about the eastern philosophy in the east they gave this up a long time ago they kind of said okay we'll just we'll accept things as they are um, and in in the west it's almost as if we went the complete opposite direction and we said we'll make that we'll make things so good that we never have to worry again and we, we clearly haven't gotten there yet with all this advanced technology and, uh, you know, nuclear power and artificial intelligence right around the corner. And we still haven't gotten there. And sometimes I think, sometimes I honestly think that when, when it, you know, if there's some catastrophe in the Western world, the, probably the group that's going to survive is the Amish because they still have this model where they're reliant on nobody outside of their immediate community where they have whatever information or technology they need to survive, they have it all right there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, that that is the current myth. And I wonder, you know, I hope that, I hope that it works out for everybody. Um, I, I, I hope yeah, so too, ahead. but you, but you're right. I mean, we're, uh, you know, I would say uh, on average, you know, it's hard to talk about people in general, but I think probably on average, we're as individuals able to do, sort of less in terms of survival and, um, you know, that, uh, that old American ideal of self-reliance than, you know, than earlier generations were right. Because we're, we're sort of, we're increasing, we're increasingly reliant on, on technology to sort of do it for us and, and sort of the systems it supports and things like that. But, um, but yeah, community, you know, a community like the Amish, um, you know, that that's was around before, uh, any, any of these modern developments happened is yeah they they could probably survive the collapse of at least some of uh, some of this modern world whereas um, you know if you, you you think what would happen to us if the power grid went down I mean survive a few days but then it you know be catastrophic uh, for us and so we've made ourselves very reliant 
on systems that most of us don't really understand, can't do anything about, couldn't repair or rebuild. And, um, and that's, a, it's, it's a little concerning, um, you know, because it, it, we need to maintain, um, we really need to maintain the status quo uh, to a large extent if we're going to continue and, and whether or not that's viable, um, I think is, you know, un, unclear. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's at least good to, to think about it. It's at least good to talk about it because in some way, maybe we're just pulling, you know, pulling some attention to what the modern shadow is in the culture. And uh, that's it's probably beneficial just to begin having those conversations. Um, I want to before we go too far into this because I don't want to eat up all the time with this. But um, I wanted to just give you a chance to talk about your new Substack that you've started. Uh, it's called Thresholds, and you're writing on myth, folklore, and literature. It's pretty new. Um, I think you had when I looked, you had a couple of posts up, and uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just curious, uh, what's the impetus, and what do you hope to do with this? Well. Yeah, the impetus is partly um, in kind of reading for, you know, things that, well, things that I'm interested in, things that are related to, um, you know, my my current writing project. Um, I don't really have an outlet for a lot of, you know, sort of my my thoughts about them. And and sometimes, I, you know, I come across, I might come across a book or, or uh, you know, some figure, some person or, or something um, that... Uh, I think it would be kind of fun to explore. So it is just getting started, but I'm kind of thinking of it right now as as uh, kind of an outlet for uh, for writing about you know topics, books um, that uh, don't necessarily fit into what I'm currently working on, but I think you know might be of interest to um, you know to readers who enjoyed Pan, who have some some of these these same interests um, that I do as well, because I think. Um, uh, I, I think I, I I need to have an outlet for uh, for things. So if, so it's helpful for me if I if I read a book I think is really interesting. I, it helps me to kind of organize my thoughts a little bit about it and, and reflect on it. But I'm hoping to write a little more directly about um, about myth as well. Uh, uh, so uh, so we'll see what happens. It's it is pretty new, but that's what I'm kind of thinking about that. Okay. Um, yeah. So as you go through, you you read you probably read a lot of books and research, but also just because it's interesting to you, and you, you just I, I feel this way sometimes where I just read so much, and it it informs me in ways, and I just want to be able to share that with other people or just you know right. with, with people who are interested. But it is a good question, like what is the best format and how do you do it efficiently and or effectively and uh, the other. The other challenge is if you're focused on a specific book, not everything you come across is going to need to be in that book. In fact, you can't put everything in that book, but there's probably things here or there that you just want to speak directly to and, and maybe in, in less of a long form manner, but just share uh, some quick thoughts on it. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Okay. Any type, any idea of uh, schedules or is this going to be kind of like a, as get it as it comes projects? Well, right now I'm, uh, cause I, cause I am busy. I am busy with this current, current book I, I'm putting together, but uh, my plan is every other week. So, um, so I'm going to get the next post. Um, I think it'll be up on, it'll be up on Tuesday. So I'm just, I'm thinking of a couple of ideas for that, but um, I'll get something together and um, hopefully it'll be something kind of fun and interesting for the next one. I don't want it to be all book reviews, you know, Okay. but yeah, uh, 
but yeah, so, something else. Yeah, I guess one of the nice things about doing a Substack, they're kind of like the modern blog where you can, it doesn't have to be, everything doesn't have to be in sequence or in chapters and it doesn't have to all be related. It can just be whatever comes up. You can, you can have a kind of a go at it. I kind of like the idea of the sort of random thoughts about something <laughs> approach, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, that's cool. Um, I, th I'm, I think it'll be, I mean, I'm interested to see what comes of it. Um, just, just, uh, just like reading all the, the authors of the past people who've gone through and have dug through a lot of stories and myth, you know, the Joseph Campbell's mm -hmm. and, uh, that, I don't know, it's fascinating to me to see it all just people who go explore it and then pull it out and you know, what's available for us today. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, let's get into your book, pan. Uh, it's called yeah. pan, the great gods, modern return. And, um, I, again, as I mentioned before, the, probably the most well-known modern version of pan is, is the Peter pan story, um, with captain hook and Wendy and the boys. And to me, I, I, we don't have to focus on uh, that, but to me that there's like a very real connection to our modern day through that story. And Pan's only a piece of it, but who is, who's like, who's the original Pan and where did he come from and, and why is he important? And again, why, what drew you to, to this character or this archetype? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so Pan was the, um, the ancient Greek god of the wild and, uh, the god of of shepherds as well. He seems to have started out as as the god of shepherds, and then um, uh, kind of expanded over time. So he he was um, the god of places that humans wouldn't go, like you know, crags and mountains and uh, forests and things like that. So he started out in Arcadia, which was a very uh, mountainous, wooded place it was difficult to farm there um the arcadians did did farm and live in towns but the other greeks thought of them as this kind of wild men and um they had to supplement their uh their limited agriculture with with hunting pan was was also god of the hunt that's kind of a feature that got lost uh, a bit along the way but um they had to supplement that with raising flocks hunting um and and things like that so he he started out uh, there, and um, he was eventually adopted. His cult sort of spread throughout the rest of Greece. Um, he was adopted at Athens after um, helping them win a battle against uh, the Persians at Marathon. Um, and the the Athenians, uh, Herodotus reports a story that the Athenians told that when they had sent uh, a runner named uh, Pheopides or Philippides uh, to rally the Spartans. Um, the runner encountered Pan along the way, and Pan said to him, "Hey, I really, uh, I look after the Athenians. I like the Athenians. How come I'm not honored there? Because if I'm honored there, I will, I will, you know, come to their aid." And so when he got back, he reported this, and the Athenians honored Pan, and they won the Battle of Marathon, and so they instituted some games for him, and so on. Um, but Pan's cult spread throughout uh, the ancient world. Um, the Romans identified him with a similar god named Faunus, and um, and in later times, um, Pan really he became a, a kind of a cosmic god because his name sounds like the ancient Greek word for all, 
pan which we still have like in pandemic or pan american games or something like that and so he, he kind of became seen as this uh cosmic kind of power um with um uh, a relationship to zeus and um he he in some ways um he changes based on what you know society's sort of needs are um or um you know you could also view it kind of the the other way around which is that we have we have a god who um is discovered and experienced in different ways by people throughout time and so in modern times um one of his more popular kind of manifestations um is uh, as the horned god of the witches he's often identified with with that in um in modern witchcraft for example so he's a god who appears in all kinds of places and in all kinds of interesting ways um but i think you know one way to kind of think about his origins is to come back to a point you raised earlier on this this idea of the shadow side of our our culture and for the ancient greeks you know the ancient greeks they're they're civilized they're they're very urbane. Um, Apollo is the god of reason and the arts, and you know he's he's honored everywhere. And Pan is this shaggy, half human, half goat figure who really embodies those qualities the Greeks essentially rejected or looked down upon uh, or scorned in some way. So the wilderness, um, the countryside, um, the animal world, all of those kinds of things that were. Um, things that the ancient Greeks kind of wanted to put to one side or, you know, didn't value as highly as reason and order, that kind of thing. And so Pan was often a figure of fun um, for the ancient Greeks. And uh, because he was identified as a kind of country bumpkin god, he was he was viewed affectionately, but not necessarily taken seriously. Um, and I think that's one reason why we don't have a lot of myths. And and the ones that we do have, I think, are are a bit they're a bit questionable, you know, like Ovid's, Ovid told the story of Pan chasing an nymph named Syrinx, who to escape him, turned herself into a reed, and that's the origin of his pipes. But that's a really late myth, like that's from um, the reign of Augustus in, in Rome. Um, there is one feature about Pan's role in the ancient world that makes him really different from the other gods, and that's actually his death. Um, he's the only god in ancient times to have, who was thought to have died. Um, and the ancient writer Plutarch records that, uh, you know, it's one of these secondhand stories. He heard from someone who heard from someone who was on a boat with someone who had heard this great cry as they were traveling um, by ship that, that Pan was dead and to let everyone know. Um, and the emperor Tiberius apparently took this seriously, and he asked his counselors who did some investigations, and they claimed that Pan was indeed dead. Um, and yet when the Greek writer Pausanias uh, visited Greece a century later, he was still being worshipped in, in Arcadia. Um, and so he clearly did not die, at least for his, his followers and so on, but this idea that Pan had died um, kind of took off and and that was adopted later on by christians who looked at it in different ways um some looked at it as symbolizing the death of paganism you know that and so sort of got reimagined as happening at the time of christ's death or his birth um other christian writers in later centuries thought that maybe pan was actually christ and that 
there had this was sort of how the pagan world um was was told of Christ's death in some way. So it's it's a really interesting myth in its own way. Um but uh but Pan was the only the only one of those ancient Greek gods who was thought to have died. So that really makes him stand out um, in some interesting ways as well. Yeah, that is really interesting. I'd never actually heard that. So is is there are there any related resurrection stories or coming back to life stories that would also connect him to the the early Christian ideas? No, and that's that's what's so strange about it because there are there are other gods in the ancient world who die and resurrect, like Osiris, for example, in in the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian pantheon. But Pan, Pan just dies um, in in this version of the story, and so uh, so he so he's unique in that regard because, of course, the gods are immortal. So how can how can an immortal god die? Um, yeah. It raises questions about you know. What exactly was Pan? He wasn't, you know, he wasn't one of the twelve Olympians. He never quite, he, he was never quite seen as that that level of god. He was a more, more local, more accessible, uh, more human friendly god um, than than the Olympians were. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, also, the connection to the way you talk about him as being. Uh, representative of of the horned god of the witches and of being more of the countryside of the country bumpkin uh pan is half kind of like half human form and half animal form correct and so it's right. it's yeah. uh to compare that to wh whatever the greeks were becoming in athens and sparta and their big city states it's interesting that they would begin to spurn that thing that is still so primitive or or not as civilized but then also anytime there's fun there's celebration there's you know some lasciviousness then all of a sudden pan is welcome and he's part of it and it kind of speaks to the this reality of pleasure being central to the body in a way i find yeah, that interesting um it, it is and, and pan was some um... Pan was often depicted in the retinue of Dionysus, you know, the god of wine and, and ecstasy, and so, um, so absolutely, he he was connected with with pleasure and celebration and so on. And um, from uh, from the evidence we have, it seems Pan was was worshipped um, with the night of drinking. You know, pe people would go to a cave. The gods like to be worshipped uh, or approached rather in silence, except for Pan. If you were approaching Pan, uh, worshippers would clap their hands, bang on pots and things like that. And um, and he'd be honored with a night of feasting and drinking and, and carrying on. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting, you know, thinking about Pan as a kind, as kind of embodying these shadow sorts of qualities, because the ancient Greeks didn't exclude him completely like they they did find a way to sort of integrate him into their their world even though it was one that um you know valued civilization as they understood it you know over those more rural and um uh yeah those more rural kinds of pursuits and um and then you know what we call the natural world things like that yeah, the natural world is what came to mind, especially when you think about moving from the Greek and Roman worlds into the more Christian world, where civilization takes another step away from, you could call it the natural world or, you know, the 
the natural man or the body or whatever it is, uh, it's interesting that Pan gets then associated with with witches who are obviously deep within the Christian shadow because they don't want to acknowledge that there are these things out there that may be, you know, with the Christian, in the Christian theology, you have this one God who provides everything you need. And so anything that's being provided from something else is, is inherently bad or inherently dangerous. And that goes right along with this type of fun, I guess, that Pan likes to have where, in the Christian world, there really is, at least in the world that I grew up in and, you know, sitting in a Catholic mass or even, even probably going to a Jewish synagogue, there's not a lot of noise and celebration and revelry. It's a lot of quietness and it's very solemn and, and God wants reverence and that the Holy Spirit approaches you when you're reverent and in a state of quiet, submissive contemplation. And it seems like Pan would be pretty antithetical to that situation. Yeah, um, and so I, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's true. And and so in a way, Pan, you know, Pan continues to embody these kinds of you know, as we're calling these sort of shadow qualities, right? I mean, he's 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 noisy, he's ecstatic, he's um, he's sexual sometimes in a way that is dangerous and threatening. Um, and it, it's all of those things that are not present when we're silent and reverential and 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 so on. Um, and so he he's he's a difficult god to come to terms with, perhaps in in the modern world, even even if we're not personally committed to you know one of those um, those traditional faiths, um, our our culture has been so shaped by them and and their attitudes. Um, feelings about the body attitudes towards you know certain kinds of behavior um, and things like that there's still you know we we don't we generally take a dim view of drunken rowdiness right except maybe at the end of a football game or something like that where where it might be considered a, appropriate but you know it's not those kinds of behaviors are not really integrated very well into our um our world i think yeah, and especially when you think about the things that are considered sacred, uh, it's hard, I think, for the modern Western world to consider a lot of that stuff as sacred in a way. But if it, you know, if if you want to have, I guess, more of a balanced experience, a balanced reality in life, then perhaps there is an aspect of misbehaving, an aspect of having that wild, drunken night an occasion that is a little bit of a part of that balance that the, the world needs. And if, if, uh, you know, from a Carl Jung perspective, again, healing is, or growing individuating is kind of finding that balance between what you used to think was good and righteous and appropriate and being willing to step into the realm of things that maybe not aren't, you know, aren't socially acceptable, but are still something that inside of you, you still have that, that ancient man that, you know, you know, with given the, the story of evolution, where did we come from? And maybe some of that is still in us. And maybe every now and then just from a health, emotional health and mental health perspective, we need to balance that out a little bit. Yeah. And, and Pan, you know, with his half human, half animal form, it is, is sort of visually a kind of reminder that uh, a reminder of our, our instinctive life that we share we share 
our life with with the lives of animals. And if we completely repress and exclude that part of ourselves, we're we're not going to be healthy. We're we're not going to be well. And the fact that Pan was regarded as a divinity is also su suggesting that this is also a part of ourselves where we can find the sacred. You know, it's not only in those moments. I mean, the Greeks the Greeks practiced prayer and re and reverence and a lot of um, you know all all these you know these ancient and Near Eastern faiths. They had some things in common in terms of how you approached the the divinity but you know pan pan reminds us that the sacred is also found elsewhere it's it might even be found in places that we don't think of at all as being sacred um and so yeah so he's kind of he's sort of he remains a kind of challenge for us uh, almost almost a rebuke you know of of looking at uh our relationship to the non-human world, including the divine, as uh, in such a narrow way, and and so humorlessly, you know. I mean, that's the other thing. Pan is funny; um, his appearance is funny, um, and and so he kind of undermines that that seriousness too, that that often goes along with our normal understanding of piety and reverence and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and the Christian world, the Western world, got to a point where they had completely separated, you know, whatever spirit, you know, we use this word spirituality, but they have this idea of a spirit or a soul inside of everybody that is separate from the body. And right. coming later on, you get people like Nietzsche who says, well, your body is actually your, that is your spirit. And, you know, in out, you know, you have the alchemists who are saying that you go and you find spirituality through things that are disgusting and gross you have feces you have dung you know whatever it may be that's the beginning of discovering that spirituality so i think it's yeah it's pretty interesting those separations um f moving beyond say like the greeks and the romans what other characters are out there that are then associated with pan from other from other pantheons or other you know collections of mythology whether it's norse or some of the pagan ideas, some of the Celtic ideas, or even do you see it? Uh, do you see it in, you know, some of the North American tribes and their stories? Do you see it in Indian culture? What other? Where else does Pan appear? I think, I think Pan. Uh, that's a that's a that's a tough question. Pan is 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 distinct in a lot of ways. Um, he. I mean, he was distinct even in the ancient kind of Greek and Roman sort of world. Um, if we're thinking about sort of other pantheons, um, the Egyptians, uh, Herodotus talks about um, how at, at Mendes, uh, the Egyptians worshipped a, a deity who uh, had the horns of a goat and um, was at least rumored to uh, be worshipped in rites involving uh, goats and and women. Um, and Herodotus, Herodotus does this kind of thing where he reports a kind of lurid story and then just says, I don't know if it's true. Um, and it's, and it's hard to know, but, um, but I think that, um, in terms of other gods he's connected with there, there is a, an ancient Vedic deity named Pushtan, whose name like Pan seems to be connected with ancient Indo-European roots involving pastures and, and things like that. Um, he's also connected with goats. He, and he 
he drove uh, a solar chariot of some kind and um, rewarded his followers with pastures and things like that. Um, but I think uh, if we're thinking about, you know, sort of more gods that might be more familiar to us, I think Pen Pen can also be a kind seen as a kind of trickster, you know, in that he he undermines um, the the order of things, and and so um, you know, even a, a god like Loki um, might be one to to kind of think about there, and um, and many ancient writers thought Pan was the son of Hermes, you know, who was uh, the among other things, a kind of trickster god, god of thieves, uh, for the Greeks, um, Hermes, uh, you know, Mercury in the, the Roman pantheon. But, he, um, so he, he has these, I guess he has these different aspects, ones that are related to the natural world and ones that are, um, maybe more along the sort of trickster spectrum of things. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. Um, with the trickster, I've, I, that's kind of where I relate to it as well, because I see a lot of um, part of that playfulness, right? I've got a, in fact, I've got a a nine year old daughter right now who she's like on this prank spree, where she can't help but find ways. To, she did some silly pranks, like she went in my closet and hid all of my socks. <laughs> so I I went to get <laughs> socks and all my socks are gone. And uh, she did this thing where she took my wife's, she got into my wife's purse. And she took all of her cards, like credit cards, driver's license, and they were all kind of just together. And so she took little stickies and she like put them between all of them so that when my wife went to pull out her card at a store, all of her cards came out and then she's like peeling them apart one at a time. Oh, no. Um, and so I, you know, and then and I brought this up a couple of times with Peter Pan. But again, like childish trickster plays a flute. He flies around. He lives in a tree. Um so yeah, I, I definitely see the trickster side of it. What about um, with with like modern characters? You know, some of the stories that that are more modern or, or classical stories, fairy tales, that kind of thing. Where does where do you see Pan come up in those? Gosh, um, I think. Well, I think to. I mean, I think one place to start is with with Peter Pan because, as you point out, I mean. He obviously has pan and pan in his name, right? But um, he also plays that that little pipe, and he um, he is connected with the natural world. I mean, he you know never never land living in you know in the woods there with um, with his little band of lost boys who are in a way kind of modern reimaginings of the of the fawns or satyrs or. Pan is that um, sort of little woodland kinds of spirits that Pan was typically associated with, and um, and there is it, it. It's interesting too because he's Peter Pan is is a is obviously a really sympathetic character. He has a lot of compassion um, for Wendy, and um, he he fits in. He fits in with that that version of Pan that kind of comes out in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, like in uh, The Wind and the Willows, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, who uh, this chapter is often omitted from American versions of the, the book, but he is very much a, a Pan uh, figure and he's protecting a little baby otter and there's uh, the two animals, the water rat and the mole discover him and... and um, uncover uh uncover the the baby otter that he's protecting at, at his feet but pan pan develops these uh, kind of surprising associations with innocence and 
um, compassion um, that are different from what we see in a lot of portrayals of him in, in the ancient world. Although there were some stories in ancient times showing Pan being compassionate towards um, towards lovers, for example, and uh, it's the story of Daphnis and Chloe. He helps them out and rescues Chloe and so on. Um, and, and Peter Pan is very much in that, that kind of tradition. Um, I think if we're thinking of other stories, I mean, we we have Pan appear in um, the Percy Jackson series, um, which I'm I'm watching I'm watching with my stepson right now, and uh, I, I don't think we're going to get to Pan in this first season. But um, you know, in the Percy Jackson series, Pan is missing, and um, the satyrs have to to find him. Um, and when they do, he's he's very much a fading power and uh i guess uh, i guess it's a spoiler alert on on pan and percy jackson but you know he's he's disappearing from the world and the reason is we haven't cared for the wilderness enough and if we want if we want that wilderness if we want that connection with nature we have to figure it out for ourselves um and so he he does remain as as that kind of presence um even even today and I think I kind of like that version too because it's really it's like challenging us. Uh, you know, it's not it's not enough to say, oh, Pan's out there in the wilderness, you know, everything as well, but really kind of turning it back on us and saying, well, how how have we cared for the wilderness? You know, how how have we honored that? Um, yeah. Do, do you see any kind of connection between that and the story you shared earlier from the Greeks where Pan had died? Is there some kind of analogy between the Greek world and our world today? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that the, the idea of Pan sort of fading from our world and, and leaving, um, leaving the future of nature, the wild up to us is, um, is, is sort of sending a message, but it's, it's a, it's a different one. It's not clear and it's not clear in Plutarch what, the death of Pan means um, in that particular moment. You know, Christians find a particular meaning in it, but it's not really clear. I think um, in the case of of Pan fading away in Percy Jackson, the meaning is a lot lot more clear. And if we're thinking about the death of Pan and what that means to us, the the death of Pan, in some ways, if we identify Pan with the wilderness, has become a little more of a, a literal possibility for us if we think about climate change and the effect that's having on environments and species extinctions and things like that. I mean, if Pan is the wilderness, in a very real sense, Pan is is fading away or or dying off. And uh, and so again, it sort of turns it back back to us if we want if we want to have that experience of the non-human world uh, and all of its richness and diversity and um thinking about ourselves in relation to it, we need to, we need to make choices, um, collective choices really about how, how we relate to, to the wild. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just, just as an example of how myth can share or kind of open our eyes to the world we're experiencing, or they, it can share something with us. That's not a direct statement. But like you were saying before, you have this resonance with it. There's a numinous experience where it means something. And because because it's in the myth instead of, you know, an activist screaming at us, then you can almost absorb it better. You can come to see, you can come to feel the importance of it in a way that's, I would say, less defensive because it's not so, you know, um, immediate it's not so in you know 
direct. And uh, in a way, I think that's the power of myths. At the same time, one of the challenges of myths is how many people read it in a literal way. And, you know, I, I personally haven't seen the Percy Jackson series, but I can imagine people watching that and either missing the point because they see it in, in too literal of a way, or in another sense, missing the point because a lot of times in our modern day, it seems like stories are mostly for entertainment rather than some, right. some kind of creating some kind of inner thinking or inner dialogue. Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, um, and I think that, you know, the, we, we need activists, we, we need people doing that kind of work, but, um, just like, you know, I, scholarly studies of things, you know, involve making arguments and making better arguments and so on, but arguments have their limits. You know, if, if we were, if we were only brains, uh, sort of rationally processing the world, that would be enough, but, but but we're not, you know, and uh, stories, I think um, it's, it's sort of sentimental to put it this way, but but stories do connect the head and the heart, you know, we and and if they give us that experience of the numinous, that sense of something other, uh, something meaningful, something we can't just make sense of with with our rational brains, um, you know, they they connect us with something more powerful that we can maybe draw upon and, um, you know, that brings us, I don't know, brings us a sense of peace or even energizes us to, to act and, um, do the kind of work we might need to in, in our own lives and perhaps for, for the world as well. Um, yeah. 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 And I think another route to that is the other version or kind of that other side piece of pan that you were talking about, which was the trickster, um, to think of him as like the court jester, the comedian, uh, somebody who pokes fun at the society and going back to this world that I grew up in, this literal religious world, a lot of humor was not allowed because it was deemed inappropriate or it was deemed uh, too harsh or it was cruel. Uh, but in a lot of ways, we need that character. You know, the, the, in ancient times, the archetype of the clown was sacred. It was the sacred clown. And the same way that myths can kind of permeate us with these ideas that are difficult to deal with. The The character of the the jokester or the comedian is also critical. And I think even in, in our world today, there's a lot of pushback against comedians because they say things that are, they come across offensive or they come across uh, insensitive. But in a lot of ways, what they're doing is, you know, the reason that they make rooms laugh, that they make people laugh uh, at home when they're watching it on recording is that they're saying things that we know are true, but that we're hiding in our shadow and that, that thing pokes us and then we, you know, we have to deal with it. And so I would, I, I would guess that that's a big part of the pan archetype or the pan God in his role is to just, it's probably why he, you know, you were saying that we, as societies or as cultures, as we move forward, we kind of rediscover pan in different ways and he becomes these different things to us. And it seems that in our modern world, at least in one way, that's why Pan has come back up. He, he can never be fully, you know, if he's ever fully dead or killed or removed, if he fades away, then I think we're actually in a really tough spot because I think we need, we need Pan. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, if if some of the defining myths for us are progress, efficiency, technology, and you know, there we have this shaggy, goat-headed god emerging from the shadows, playing his rustic pipes. You know, we're <laughs> he's really he's really subverting, or or at least you know, quest calling into question our our total reliance on these you know ultra modern kind of futuristic ways of of looking at the world by uh in some ways drawing us back to our drawing us back to our animal origins kind of you know bringing our feet back onto the ground you know and um and i think that you know humor is is definitely a big part of that i mean it's you know humor brings us back down to earth right it um and and pan is is similarly a figure who you know maybe reminds us of the divine in nature but also reminds us that you know we're we're also shaggy animals in our own way and we can dream about the future and machines and screens and everything else but we're not we're not going to escape the fact that we are uh we are bodies and um bodies are can be beautiful they can also be funny <laughs> you know and a source of pleasure and pain and all those things but um until we until we completely upload ourselves um you know we're we're going to have to uh, acknowledge that that part of ourselves and um and i think humor humor is always a great way for us to realize uncomfortable truths because it's not necessarily threatening and it's enjoyable you know it's it's pleasurable too um so yeah the yeah the figure of the trickster the jokester you know jolts us awake um but in a way that you know feels good that's fun and and even and and even that feeling of transgression uh that we mm. get with jokes we don't consider appropriate or offensive or whatever there's a kind of thrill to that um and and it is it is something we still feel is is subversive and potentially dangerous um and there's always this there's always people who feel the need to police humor because it it takes us in directions maybe they don't want us to go um so yeah i always think about um well i love comedy i listen like i'm a big fan of stand-up comedy uh my wife and i were celebrating our anniversary 15 years coming up and so what, what we're doing is we're, yeah thank you uh what we're doing is going to a comedy show because it's just it's just nice to to be able to go somewhere where everybody can let loose and laugh a little bit especially when you, you do, you know, when most comedians are poking fun at the society, you feel like, okay, like we're, we're laughing at ourselves and, uh, it's, it's important. Um, absolutely. Yeah. I do want to ask you about, uh, your upcoming work, what, what you're focused on now you're on sabbatical from teaching and, uh, you're, you're yeah. working on something. So what's, what is this? So what's over the horizon for you? Yeah, um, I'm currently working on uh, my next book, which is stories of the stones. And this one is looking at, um, the way that uh, the way that we've imagined the stories we've we've created about um, prehistoric sites, places like Stonehenge, um, probably the most famous, but you know other places like Avebury, um, Newgrange in Ireland, uh, Karnak in Brittany. These these places that endure from you know prehistoric times are part of the landscape, but which are kind of ultimately unknowable. And um, I'm really fascinated by the way we we respond to that mystery by creating stories um and so the book is looking at um the stories and also the way these sites have been represented in um art and um film and television as well uh 
through through the centuries. So, um, you know, I, and I think it's it's a really fun book for me to write because I get to watch you know really you know films and British science fiction from the 1970s and and things like this. But in a way, it it does harken back to Penn because these are these are also stories that are really thinking about our our relationship to the environment and uh, and to the land. Landscape and um, and are, are also confronting this kind of deep unknowable mystery um, and thinking about what it what it means for us. So um, so uh, that should be out. I, I think it'll probably be out next year, um, hopefully. Um, so that's what I'm working on at the moment. Okay, awesome. Yeah, when you when it is available, you have to come back on and share. We'll we'll, we'll do a deep dive into that as well. Yeah, um, but I'm curious, what is it now that you said that this one also relates to Pan? I'm curious, what is it then that drew you to this character, and uh, what, what keeps you kind of coming back to it from a personal level? <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, you know the the short the the immediate version was I I so I'm an English professor and I've uh, you know write. I've written a fair bit of uh, sort of literary criticism, that kind of thing. And, and I was reading um, D.H. Lawrence, um, an English writer who brings Pan into quite a few things he's working on in the early 20s. And that sort of got me thinking about Pan more generally and um, realizing that, I, you know, Pan had actually been kind of an important figure to me over, over the years. I grew up, um, I'm I'm Canadian and um, I grew up reading um I grew up reading a lot of British books, and uh, I uh, I loved an absolute favorite was Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows, and and again it features Pan as the figure of the Piper of the Gates of Dawn, this kind of god of the animals, and um, and that was an absolute favorite when I was uh, growing up, and I'd always I don't know I'd always just kind of had an affection and an interest in in Pan, and. Um, and I, uh, I just started to see Pan everywhere, and uh, and that was kind of, that was kind of how that that came about. Yeah, so, that's yeah. when you start diving into myth, you start seeing, you start seeing the archetypes, the characters playing out all over. Um, yeah, well, absolutely. Well, Paul, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on and chatting with me about uh, your work and the things that interest you. I'm really glad that there are people out there like you who do these deep dives and uh, sh share that information with the world because I think it's 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 fascinating and it's interesting and it's fun. I get curious about it, but I also think that the more that we uh, come to have these analysis of stories, both from the past and the present, the more we start to see you know, the purpose of the myth. And also just we can move from that, that literal interpretation into something that's much more helpful, much more psychological, where we can all, uh, you know, find a way to grow from it. So I really appreciate that. And um, thank you for having me. Yeah. And before we get off, do you want to just share really quick where people can find your work, um, either books or on social media, or also your your new Substack? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you can find uh, Pan, um, you know, you can order it through your local independent bookstore. That would be great. Um, but it's also available uh, through Amazon um, in Barnes & Noble online in North America, um, Blackwell's um, in the UK. And um, uh, and um, my uh, I'm on Twitter. My, my Twitter handles um, at uh, Paul J. Robichaud. Um, and you can find me on Substack uh, as uh, with my, my newsletter thresholds. 
Okay, awesome. And I'll also uh, include all those links in the show notes as well so people can find them. But again, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and goodbye. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast, exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. Thanks again.